pray. Amen. There's an old Jack Benny skit that illustrates the dangers involved when money becomes more important to us than anything else. Jack was walking along when suddenly there was an armed robber that approached him and ordered your money or your life. There was a, a long pause and Jack did nothing. The robber impatiently queried and says, well, and now Jack replied this way, don't rush me. I'm thinking about it. Friends, in our story today, we have two characters. One is thinking about it. And this is Judas Iscariot. Another, however, doesn't think twice. And that is Mary of Bethany, who with her jester breaks the alabaster box for the Savior. And through both of these characters, Christ's death is predicted. We're coming at the end of Christ's public ministry here. This is the final Passover. Last week, we saw the last and climactic public miracle of Jesus. He raised Lazarus from the dead. These are the final chapters of the first part of the Gospel of John, the book of miracles. We, we saw seven miracles now. And the end of the, the public ministry of Jesus will come with this chapter. Jesus retires with the upper room as he gives a farewell speech to his disciples before his 11 disciples before his death. Remember that the threat of death for Jesus are at the heights here. Jesus has to avoid public presence in the temple. Last chapter, now the second part opens a moment of intimacy with the disciple. The, what is called the second part of the Gospel of John, the book of exaltation. Jesus will be exalted to be lifted up at the cross. And next week we'll see actually him entering triumphantly to Jerusalem. So the atmosphere of this chapter 12 is very much messianic. And therefore we come to this anointing of Mary of Bethany and we must frame it within this messianic component. Remember, the goal of the Gospel of John is to teach you something. The author, John, is guiding you to move beyond a surface idea of who Jesus is, of his identity. To see the fact that he's united with God. In fact, he is God in the flesh, and that is the nature of his messianship. This uh, story of an, the anointing of Mary is recorded for us in other Gospels. However... Last time we saw the awkward beginning of chapter 11, verse 2, that repeats and talks about this story in advance. That made people think that the passage of Luke, chapter 7, is actually describing a different anointing. An anointing that happens twice. This woman was in Galilee, a sinful woman, probably a prostitute, that unlike here took place in the northern part of Israel and gave rise to a parable. It was much earlier in the time frame of the gospel. I mean, we are almost at the triumphal entry of Jesus next week into Jerusalem. Here instead, you have Mary of Bethany, who is already a close acquaintance of Jesus. Notice also how this passage is strictly connected to what we saw last time, Lazarus. That the death, the lament, the burial, and the resurrection of Lazarus are connected now with this anointing of Mary. We're still in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. 
the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we, we notice this Mary who just saw her brother come back to life from the dead. Her faith and many people's faith had been stretched in such a way by the resurrection of, of her brother. And out of gratitude, she offers this ointment. However, this ointment is a prophetic act because it points ultimately to the burial of Jesus Christ. Almost as if she's aware of something. That Lazarus was raised from the dead thanks to Jesus' work. Thanks to the fact that Jesus in a week from now will raise from the dead. The appointed hour is approaching, okay? And now several characters in our story, whether it's the, the chief priest, whether it's Judas, whether it's uh, Mary... Everyone in the story begins to foreshadow this death and resurrection of the anointed Messiah. Let's look at the first way in which the death of Christ, the burial of Christ is predicted. The first way that we see is in the raising of Lazarus. We briefly commented that last time, but let's expound a bit as we look at verses listed there. That Christ, like Lazarus, will bring some to believe. Through his resurrection. However, there's another way in which Lazarus' resurrection points to Jesus. Is that others will persecute Lazarus. Just like they will persecute Jesus and his followers after the resurrection. But after the raising from the dead. That is how the burial of Christ is predicted here. We are approaching, as I said, the end of the story. We are, verse 1 tells us, six days before Passover. Pilgrims are coming from all over the world to come to Jerusalem. And there's one week left before the big event. The Passion of Christ. The Holy Week. Yet there's a price, as we saw, on Jesus' head. He cannot walk around freely to Jerusalem. And from now on till the end, the Gospel, the, there's something that uh, John expands for us. The timeline is far longer, far slower motions. John wants you to see these last moments, unlike the other gospel, the last moments of the disciples with their saviors. Now, Lazarus, remember, had been dead, our text says, but Jesus had raised him from the dead. This miracle is still fresh. It left everyone in amazement, including the author of this gospel, John. And now Jesus is invited to this dinner in the hometown of his friends, Bethany, from the cemetery to the town this is a small town which it's kind of the headquarter for Jesus' ministry before his death. Very close to Jerusalem. But it's also in hiding. And they're having a, a celebration, a supper. Lazarus has been restored to life. Can you imagine? You've been at a funeral. Today there's a funeral taking place and you're dressed in black and people are crying. And all of a sudden you have to take off the grieving clothes. And you, you, you have to pass from weeping to rejoicing. So this moment is packed with emotions. There's a shock. There's a joy. And in the midst of all that comes our story. Other gospel tells us that Jesus and his friends are in the house of Simon the leper. And uh, as you would expect from other parts of the gospels, there stands Martha once again serving at tables. I pointed out how Luke 10, 41 and 32, she's very busy in, in helping and doing things. She definitely would make a fine Proverbs 31 woman. But at times, friends, there are spiritual matters that are more important than industry, cleaning, bureaucracy, or even, like Judas, wisdom 
in the use of funds. Here in our story, Mary understands something. Lazarus, her brother, is sitting there at the table. 24 hours ago, he was dead. And there he stands alive in the kitchen. He sits, he eats food. I mean, after all, he hadn't eaten for four days, okay? He was very hungry, probably. But this points for us the reality of the resurrection. And that, that the afterlife is a real thing, okay? But it, it's not the way that we often imagine it to be. Yes, there is a, a place that after you die, there's, it's called intermediate state after death. Before finally, however, your soul is joined to the body with a resurrection. That is the ultimate destiny of all of us. We will have a bodily resurrection. And the case of Lazarus teaches us that resurrection involves our body. We often think of heaven as an ethereal place in the clouds, as we see in a, a TV commercial. But our ultimate hope remains surprisingly worldly, so to speak. There is a resurrected body. Lazarus is going to the living room. He eats food. It's life as we know. But it's better. And Lazarus was one of the few who had this foretaste of, of, of this resurrection. He experienced this bodily resurrection. And we all will experience this body resurrection one day. But there's also another dimension of Lazarus' experience that foreshadows what's coming for the Savior. It's not just the resurrection. It's, it's the, the persecution. That the renown of Lazarus' resurrection and the hostility of, uh, toward Lazarus is what Christ will later himself experience. Is what the disciples will later experience. Verse 9 tells us, Great many of the Jews came to Bethany. They probably interrupted the dinner coming to the house with this ecstatic presence. Also it was like paparazzi. It's not for Jesus that they come, but to see Lazarus. Can you imagine how it feels to speak to a person who just resurrected from the dead? How did it feel? We hear all this fantasizing of stories of people going to heaven in their dreams and then they come back and they make money to tell us uh, about their fantasies. But this is a whole different case. He had physically died. He had come back to life. And that is the point. Not the in-between. This is the only, one of the only biblical cases that you have this coming back to life and yet you hear nothing of the intermediate because that's not the point the story is about christ raising this man from the dead and this left such an impression that so many jews simply have to put their doubts aside come and see it for themselves this is no ordinary miracle okay no one raises people from the dead and that is what moved countless of crowds to recognize that jesus had to be the messiah this is ultimately what brings glory to God. Verse 10 and 11 shows us, however, that this popularity, this peak of popularity of Jesus because of the resurrection didn't sit well with the chief priests. They're doubly mad. They not only seek to kill Jesus after this last incredible miracle, but they, as we saw last time, they want to put Lazarus too to death. It's not just Jesus. We saw that already, that in chapter 11, verse 53, they were resolved to kill Jesus, but now Lazarus too. Now that, uh, We don't know if they carry this idea. We don't hear about Lazarus after this point in, in the Bible. The problem, however, from their point of view, is because of this miracle, raising a person from the dead, many people 
too many people went away from the chief priests. They left behind, rejected or deserted the chief priests and the temple. They left the presence, the guidance of the dead religious leaders in the temple. Why? Because they now want to follow Jesus as the Messiah. They want to, the one who raises the dead, and it's, it's truly, the miracle worker is truly God in the flesh. Now, this is unacceptable for the Jewish religious leaders. They are jealous. It is a damage to their reputation. It is a damage to their privileges. It is an embarrassment to their authority. Think of some of them. Half of the uh, religious leaders is Sadducees. You got the Sadducees and the Pharisees. What did the Sadducees believe? They openly denied the resurrection. And what would Lazarus, raising from the dead, represent for their false doctrine? It would be a complete destruction of all of their claims. Many of the Jewish people finally left behind and withdrew from this dead system of religious tradition made of whitewashed tombs. Dead, spiritually dead leaders. They're unable to bring any true life, any spiritual life, any physical life. And so people finally give up and they believe in Jesus. They put their trust in Jesus. They want to follow Jesus as his disciple, no matter the cost. Remember, by this time, if you associate with Jesus in the temple, you are kicked out of the synagogue. It's a serious business. But they must embrace by faith the one who raises the dead as their messiahs. I mean, you gotta, you got to think about how blind and dead in their sin must the chief priest be here. They want to kill the innocent Savior who has done nothing but good things and has already shown so many miracles to them. And now they want to kill the one who gives life. They want to kill even the person who witnessed the miracle, Lazarus. And what a miracle was this? Raising someone from the dead? What more evidence do they need? Now You might have run into people like this. In fact, we all struggle and grieve when we try to share the gospel to unbelieving friends or or even family members. And what we receive back sometimes is not just indifference, but at times open opposition. And even, you think about the, the chief priests, they go to church, they're religious, okay? They sit under God's word. In fact, they even teach God's word. And then they will die and, and realize that they've been fighting against the truth all of their lives. And no matter how many times the truth had been explained to them, they could not fathom that Jesus was from God. And even if he was, they wanted to kill him. Why? Because it is true, friend, that not even if someone rises from the dead, people who are so blatantly disobedient to God's word, not even if someone rises from the dead will they believe. Why? Because their heart is so hopelessly set toward evil. There's a scene in the movie Reason which tells kind of a, a plot story about Pilate. And he has this Roman general, Clavius, and he hires him to, to go after the, the followers of Jesus and he goes, he hates the Christians, but then he sees Jesus raised from the dead, and then he, he leaves Pilate. And now Pilate asks, why would Clavius follow that Hebrew? And there's another soldier in the room and says, well, perhaps he's true. Perhaps Jesus is really risen. And here's Pilate's response in the movie. Well, if he's risen, I'll kill him again. In other words, there are people that don't accept the evidence and they have no other option left but to try to get rid of the evidence So, because they are driven by hate. They have been given all the evidence in the world and warning in the world, but they stubbornly proceed to do evil. There's only one ex explanation left. 
God gives this, the, the religious leaders over to their evil desires of their hearts. This is the closest thing in scripture of what we describe as a reprobate. I mean, we don't know, we don't know who the people are elected, who are not. But here it almost becomes clear. Because here you have unregenerate, pretentious religious leaders. They give in to corrupt plots, even in the face of the mightiest works of the Holy Spirit, right before their eyes. And they still hate, they still reject, only to meet this certain and lasting divine judgment and displeasure. They persecute Lazarus. Soon they put to death their Savior. But all their treacheries only serves to once again predict the burial of Christ. Let's look now at the second and major character in our story that predicts the death of Christ. And that's the most beautiful one in our story. It's Mary of Bethany. She does this anointing in verse 3 to 6. What is going on there? That Mary here in a priceless gesture prophetically foreshadows the death of Christ. But there's also another character. There's Judas Iscariot. And he does the very opposite. He has this expensive gesture. And he prophetically foreshadows his own death. His own betrayal. Let's look at Mary first, verse 3, and her action. We are at the dinner table. Everyone is eating and talking with each other. Perhaps, as usual, Martha is serving the table. But Mary has all of her attention, again, only to Jesus. And there she comes with a jar, a pound, which was half a liter. Oh, the gospel describes this container as an alabaster box. And this was of a very costly and expensive content. This is how valuable, notice first of all, how Christ was to this woman. And much more, the one who resurrected her brother. And she doesn't look to prices when it comes to honoring her Savior. This box contained oil, ointment from spikenard or pure nard. This is something very hard to find in Israel. Back in the day, you didn't have airplanes, you didn't have boats uh, that, that, that will bring it. There was a plant that grew in the mountains of Himalaya in northern India. And they had to bring it through camels all the way through the Silk Road to all the way to Jerusalem from the ends of the earth. I mean, imagine the taxes on that thing. And spike or pure here refers to the brand of this nard. It's surely a top brand. Like one of you ladies might have, uh, you pour out an entire bottle of a Versace perfume. That's, that's how costly that is. Directly from this essence First of all, why did she have this? Well, she probably wanted to kept it, the anointing of, the, of, of her brother, Lazarus, because he had died. And she finds out he, she doesn't need to use it anymore because he came back to life. The Gospel of Mark comments on this, that she broke the box. Not, 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 not only this was an expensive alabaster box, but once you open it, you cannot reuse it. This is a one-time act, and she anoints Christ out of respect for him, and she wipes or drive, dries his feet with her hair. Now, it sounds very awkward, but not if, unlike Judas, you understand this is more than giving the feet of a friend a massage after a long day, more than a physical refreshment after washing. If you look at the scene in light of where the gospel story is headed, then you realize that you know, there's a diverting act here from what the Savior knows is coming. He has been telling you that his violent death is approaching. And so this gesture, obviously, is a gesture of strength, encouragement in the last week of Jesus on earth. 
And by the way, this is the treatment that you will give to a king. Full of dignity if you look at it on that light. Not too late from now, Jesus will wash the disciples' feet in a chapter from now. And again, remember who Mary is. She's always at Jesus' feet to hear his word. But there's also a symbolic, almost a, a sacred dimension to this anointing. Other gospel mentioned that she started to anoint him in the head. Now, Old Testament anointing in the head is a clear picture of a sacred anointing before either a prophet or a priest or a king needed to accomplish a great task for the Lord. We saw Wednesday night, for those who were here, we were expounding on the Baptist Catechism, and we talked about the threefold office of Christ as the anointed Christ, the Messiah, King, and prophet, and priest. And therefore, Christ is the anointed, recognized as the anointed one through this anointing from the head to the feet, just before the work of Christ, just before his passion and resurrection. Now, this large amount of perfume was offered to no one else than God incarnate. So from our point of view, this is more than a, than an, a, a kind act. This is an act of worship. It's a result of this that then you have the whole house filled with the smell of the perfume. Everyone could not but notice. But before we get to the reaction, let's, let me ask you this. What do we mean when we say that Jesus is the Christ? Ultimately, this is more than a name. It is the title that Christ has. We are saying that he's the Messiah or the anointed one foretold in the Old Testament. And now this is a crucial moment because the cross and the resurrection are approaching. And all those messi messianic prophecies are about to be fulfilled. Mary here is fulfilling something that Christ is in less than seven days in our timetable of the gospel is about to fulfill his main task and mission. She, he was forsaken on the tree so that the iniquity of us all may be laid upon him. And John all along wants you to see that this Jesus is not simply the Jesus of Nazareth. is not simply the Jesus, the son of Joseph. That's how uh, the unbelieving crowds kept describing Jesus. No, he is, he doesn't want you to be no, any more in the dark. He is the Messiah. And I think of Mary again. Like elsewhere in the gospel, she has humility, she has devotion, she has simplicity. She always is in rapt attention to the words of the Savior. And that demonstrates to us a pure act of love right here. And I must say, she delivered this act with courage, spontaneous, and it was a sacrificial love. She gave up everything. The only thing of any true value is indeed a sacrificial, costly love. It was no fancy words or explanation. She was unembarrassed. In fact, she exemplifies for us the quieting, letting go of people's opinion. She's willing to give that up to worship the Savior. I mean, this is a huge trap for us in the 21st century. Uh, to be embarrassed and to think more about people's opinion of herself. She's not consumed by what other people think of her. She's not even seeking the primacy. She's willing to do this humble gesture. And now that her brother had just come back to life, she had no more worry. She's by now driven only by this sacrificial love for the Savior. And friends, may God create such godly spirit among us. That this, this one gesture, Mary understands something, perhaps even unaware, that no other people in the room understood. I mean, she had listened to the words of the Savior. 
perhaps unlike the 11 disciples, which by now are described as slow to understand, she has taken the warnings of our Savior to heart. She knew what was coming. The hour for the Christ to be exalted through the cross and resurrection had approached. Ultimately, this gesture shows us even how our salvation is rooted, connected, catalyzed, and proven through the death and resurrection of Christ. That we die because of our sin, but there, at the cross on the basis of our redemption is laid in Him. That through the anointed Jesus Christ, resurrection is given to us and now gives us the strength to live a new life. Through the power of the living Jesus in us. To Mary, Christ and these truths were altogether precious. To the point that she was willing to give away everything. Weeks ago I was watching with my wife a documentary about a lady, Lydia Strotter. She was a British Christian painter. And she was offered the opportunity to have a fame and popularity through her painting. And yet she realized that painting, although painting was her passion, if she would have followed this advice, this would have become an hindrance to seeking the kingdom of God first. Instead, she decided to leave fame behind and she became a missionary in North Africa. Now, she kept painting, obviously, to glorify God through her gifting. But this was a way in which she broke the alabaster box to glorify Christ the most. And therefore, friends, this is an invitation for all of us to make Christ our all in all. That we're not simply called to show up on Sunday morning. But that we become a vital, active part of the church of Christ. That we serve Him even sacrificially. That she delights to offer the very best to show her love for the Master. And so I ask ourselves, do we have the same priority that Mary has here? Because again, the alternative is to be counted among the worthless Judas. Let's look at Judas now. He doesn't give up his treasure to worship Christ. Now, what, what does Judas do? He holds on to his treasure and he betrays the Savior. Now, if you were here Friday night, we watched that documentary. Uh, it was uh, the essential church. And there's this character, and as they were talking about the Covenanters, Bloody Claver House. He betrays this minister, uh, John Brown, and shot him in the head in front of his wife and children. I want to say there's always a Judas in this story. Judas, verse 4 to 6 has a misunderstanding. It's completely contrasted to Mary, verse 4 and 5, that somehow this gesture of Mary is not appreciated. That's the reaction. Those who are looking at outward appearance, uh, thankfully that the protest this time doesn't come from Martha, but from someone of his disciples. Oh, the gospel says, why this waste? They, they had indignation as they were speaking, probably whispering among themselves, thinking that the Savior did not hear their voice. But this gospel clearly singles out Judas Iscariot as the origin of this protest. John, by now, he writes the gospel. He knows the end of the story and he keeps commenting. You've noticed that, right? Every time he mentions Judas, he's the one who betrayed Jesus. And Judas protests. And he says this in our text. Why was this oil not sold for 300 denarii? This was an entire year's wage worth of an ordinary worker. It's like $30,000 for us today. That's how that alabaster box was worth. And I'm sure common sense will tell us to agree with Judas. However, he remains wrong in our story. In other words, the oil was a fortune 
It was worth a fortune. And, and then he comments, Judah, how many poor, says the socialist Judas, could have been uh, fed? You sell the oil and all the poors. He sounds like Mother Teresa here. At face value. It sounds right. It is an expensive product. And now you waste it forever during what appears to be a normal, uneventful dinner. What a waste, right? However, verse 6 comments for us, John, what's actually going on behind the, the surface value words of, of Judas. Isn't it interesting uh, how often in our day and age we can spot people who are uh, into this narcissist complex. When you have a person who monopolizes the conversation, has a sense of self-importance, is preoccupied with power, feels entitled, is interpersonally exploitative, he lacks any empathy, which is what's happening here. He wants to be admired. But beyond the surface, there's something else. Let's look what it says. There's a whole different motive that, that is hiding behind the words. What is actually the cause of the protest? He said this not because he cared for the poor, as if that was his real motive, but because Judah was a thief. Now, some of the disciples, perhaps John himself, are looking at this whole story afterwards, after Judah has been found out, and they connect the dots. They discover, perhaps from the records, how Judas was accustomed to steal. He had charge of the money box. Common fund for the disciples. This is the first church treasury in human history. And there's already problems at the first treasury of human history. Judas used to take what was put in him. He used to, some translations say, help himself. By removing what was put in the offering box by others. There's no question that this is referring by, about stealing. He dipped his hand in the box wherever no one was looking. Just a little bit here and there for his own personal use. No one will notice. So Judas thinks. Judas is that wretched guy we often hear about, sadly. In many churches who pilfer from the offering plate. And notice Jesus is standing right there. He knows all about the motive of Judas. Moralistic, face-to-face, -face, but hypocrite question. By now, Judas know who Jesus is. He should have had some fear prior to bragging about his own charitable intentions in front of the one who knows the heart of all men. Judas proved by this point he absolutely has no fear of God whatsoever, let alone any genuine repentance. He's always up to cut some of more corners and he gets mad at others who he thinks are worse than him. He has that self-righteous spirit. He doesn't address, however, Jesus doesn't address Judah. Isn't that interesting? Jesus could have said, you know, woe to you. Why does he do that? Judah is not saved. Those who are truly children of God are chastised, not those who are not. And God, in, in some ways, Jesus is aware how Judas has to be allowed his wretchedness for a season until he has fulfilled his plan, until Jesus dies. In fact, this episode is exactly what sparks Judas to immediately after the story, to go to the chief priest, shamelessly behind Jesus' back, betray him to them. But afterward, all of his sins will be found out. It will bring Judas to this irrecoverable perdition for all of his hypocrisy shown here in our story. How cruel, therefore, for Judas to treat Mary this way. Judas and the other disciples show us we must be slow to be angry or judge others based on this surface level understanding of what's happening in their relations with Christ particularly. I think in church, 
This becomes sometimes common mistake. We can all fall trap of judging others according to appearance. Gossiping about someone's motive for doing something. We seek to portrait ourselves as smarter and better than them. Beloved, let us not judge according to appearances. God will judge the secrets of the hearts of men. Yes. And we better check our hearts and motives first. Uh, we, we don't want to misunderstand and criticize those who beyond our prejudice actually are giving their best to the Lord. They're giving the whole heart. We, we, we must also consider what Mary had just went through. I mean, Christ just raised her brother to life. This is it's the most incredible day of Mary's life. And there comes Judas, ruining everything. Now, there's definitely something extravagant, awkward, at first face value of a woman untying her hairs and doing such thing in a public dinner. However, beyond the appearances, where is the heart of both? Judah's heart and Mary's heart are in the opposite place. One looks righteous, but he's actually self-righteous at best and profoundly wicked at worst. And the, op the other appears unwise, yet she silently, wholly is devoting herself to Christ. Here's how Judas and Mary's are weighted in the balances. One is found wanting, the other not. I like what Eric Limer has to say. Gilmer, what you give to Christ and how much and what you hold back are all measurements of the condition of your love for Him. Then Mary silently gives all that she got. A box of perfume to the Savior. But Judas, oh, he brags about being generous. He has this lip service of love without any true sacrifice. And what does he do? He steals from a box of money. You have to see Mary's act, therefore, friends, as a direct indictment to Judah's conscience here. Judah's thinking is wicked. Behind this hypocritical charity, he pretends to do good works. He has detestable greed. That's all that is driven. He wants to make profit, no matter even if it's dishonest. He's at ease and willing, few hours after this epitaph, to betray the master, not for 300 uh, pieces of silvers, but for 30. 30! Even after the crime, Judah's behavior finds no place in repentance. He will have a, a lot of remorse, but no repentance. Remorse is different than repentance. He doesn't turn to the Savior, to, but he's looking at himself and he's hopelessly realizing his wretchedness and he will be lost forever. His perdition also, it's not something that started the day that he betrayed Christ. It starts here. His lostness is already at work long before the night that he actually betrays the master with a kiss. That is the way that Satan usually goes about accomplishing his evil plan in the heart of carnal man. Even in the church, he uses pre-existent sins, unrepented sin, abiding bosom sins, until he weaponizes them to attack and destroys us and everyone around us completely. Thomas Watson has this illustration. It's almost like a tennis ball. Satan uses us like a tennis ball with our, 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 our temptation and our sin. And then he, he slams us, he slams us, he slams us, until we are slammed and destroyed, unable to stand back again. Judas is so worried about money. He has no concern of what will happen to his wretched soul after his own death. Or perhaps he's so blind to think that he, he's actually a good person. Right with God. Will Judas allow anyone to treat him the way he is treating God? The answer is no. But he's a thief, a traitor. After seeding 
under Jesus' teaching for years. And then he will suicide. He will not even have a proper burial. That's the end of it. Friends, it's not just a big sin. It is a slow fade that brought Judas to destruction. Let this be a lesson to you. Don't allow Satan to use your sin and ruin the work of God and the light for people around you, especially in the church. And I want to say, may God grant us elders, deacons, and even you sitting here to be faithful in the little things. Because he who is faithful in the th little things, he's faithful in much. God knows all of our secrets. And so he's calling us to turn away from any hidden hypocrisy before he leads to this destiny of Judas. Oh, Satan loves to use carnal, unrepented people to harm the work of God. Friends, this life, and I'm not talking about this morning. I'm talking about what happens six days a week as you are out of here. Your day-to-day -day life is the arena when you and I demonstrate by our conduct out there the reality or the fakeness of our commitment to God. So like Judas thinks, think about it, while Christ is still near you about the actions. Because, because before long, there's a time like it for Judas. You, you can be sorry and lost. Christ leaves us to our sin and he's gone. And openly you will be proven before everyone when you are now are secretly. There's an infamy that leads to Judas. But now, that is not the case of Mary. Mary is a beautiful, genuine actor, action with this alabaster box. And I'm not telling it from myself. I'm telling you, this is the judgment of Jesus on Mary. Let's look at our third point. Verse 7 and 8. Jesus' own words. It's the most beautiful part. That Christ, like elsewhere, vindicates Mary's gesture and invites us and the disciples. We must keep the right priorities here. What is going on here? Verse 7 and 8. The anointing of Mary actually is a foreshadow of my burial, says Jesus. The response of Jesus, who has catched their small chat, they were murmuring against Mary privately, probably making bad comments. They thought Jesus wasn't listening. But he answered particularly to Judas. He doesn't say, get thee behind me, Satan, which he should have properly said. But he says, let her alone. Leave her. All the gospel says, why do you trouble the woman? I mean, you can imagine how Judas' comment had probably left Mary feeling guilty. It's like Judas says to her, hey woman, people who are starving matter more than clean feet. And Jesus now, however, comes to Mary's defense. She's probably still there and she feels guilty. And Matthew and Mark, Jesus says, she has done this, through this act, she has done a good work to me. It's a beautiful thing. Mark even says, she has done what she could. She's done what laid in her power, what she could, whenever she could, out of all of her sources. In fact, she has kept this for my burial. Now, there's two ways to render that as kept. Either that she might keep it for my burial. In other words, Jesus is telling, let her keep this ointment for the day of my burial. Or this, she has already done that act right now. We're all familiar with objects that become symbols of something. An anchor is a symbol for stability in scripture. An apple is a symbol of temptation. A book is a symbol for knowledge. Here the alabaster box, which by the way is made of stone, a stone that is broken, becomes a symbol of the death of Christ. So she has done as a perspiration, anticipation and honoring Christ and the approaching work of Christ of dying and being raised from the dead. 
She has kept it for the day of my burial. Other gospels put it this way. She has anointed my body beforehand before, for burial. That is the other option. That she has already done what normally would be done at the burial scene. That's what was intended. Remember, Jesus had just raised Mary's brother from his own burial tomb. Matthew adds something very crucial here. He universalized the significance of this act. And he says, wherever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial for her. See how her gesture was part of a far greater purpose. Someone said, love seeks one thing only, the good of the one loved. He leaves all other secondary effects to take care of themselves. Love is his own reward. We're here. 2,000 years have passed. And we're miles and miles away from that house in Bethany. And here we're talking about this one woman. And she was probably unaware, but she was predicting with this one act the death of Christ. It is true for her that the saying that whoever honors Christ, Christ will honor him. That there is a reward for our devotion to Christ. That God receives our devotion as a pleasing aroma in his sight. That her good deed has indeed been diffused one from one end of the world to the other. It's like a fragrance through the gospel of her good oil spread it all over, not just the small room, but it comes all to our nose today through the gospel. Be thankful for the precious gift that has been broken for you. Jesus is risen from the dead. There's good smell to our soul that we can be saved. Far from being a waste, it was a prophetic act. You see that? Remember through the second part of the gospel, Jesus is prophesying, preparing the, the puzzled disciples to face the reality that he will soon die. A reality that they are not prepared for. And now the Christ, the anointed Messiah, is authenticating Mary's action as foreshadowing what will take place a week from night. The two Marys were there six days later when Jesus was nailed to the cross. There they wept. They were there when he was laid dead on the tomb and gospel tells which spices, perhaps this very jar. And even after laying Jesus in the tomb, the woman returned home to prepare more spices and ointment. Perhaps they remember this jar, the alabaster box, in case they didn't bring it at first. Who knows? Who knows the destiny of an alabaster box? But also, who do we find, in fact, in the very end of the morning of the third day at the end of this gospel, in chapter 20, verse 1 and 11? You have two Marys again, Mary of Magdalene, Mary the Mary of James, which is also Mother of Jesus and possibly this third Mary of Bethany. They bring sweet spices to anoint the dead body. Perhaps Mary kept that jar until now and brought that same jar only to find out it was no longer needed. Other than being a prophetic act and a token that now Jesus is alive. Whatever the case was with that jar, it fulfills the prophecy. Even the women were called to remember what Jesus said here before his death. Before his burial, before his resurrection ever happened. But let's flash back now and conclude to the present. Verse 8. Jesus continues as he now addressed the disciple. The poor you always have with you. You can always help poor. Mark adds, whenever you want to do good to the poor, you can. But me. Me. He places that in the beginning of the statement for emphasis. You do not have always. There's something special about this last moment together. Something that is more precious than anything. 
the good that can be done to Jesus before they no longer can. That Christ their Savior is about to die and to live them. The priority again for them and for us needs to remain the presence of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the glory of Christ over against any consideration on our money, our costs, even charity. First thing we must notice in the defense of Jesus is that he comes to the, to the help of the defenseless. He shows respect toward this woman, particularly how he rewards our act even when silently we're actually worshiping him. Do we bring joy to God in our worship, with our devotion, with our giving, with our witness as we go out? Or are we missing the point of the Christian life? I know that some churches emphasize so much doing practical good works at the expense of, of spending time with the Lord. There's a beautiful intimacy and worship from the believer to Jesus that Christ wants, appreciates either above consideration of common sense or responsible business. Remember the quarrel between Martha and Mary about household duties as opposed to sitting under the feet of Jesus to listen to his word. That Mary constantly understood the simple truth and probably unaware she was pointing to the coming death of her Savior. Think of it. Just like at the birth of our Savior, there was one of the Magi. He offered myrrh as a gift. A box of myrrh to honor the sacrifice of Christ at the beginning of Jesus' life. So here, here comes Mary. She breaks the costly box made of stone at the end of Jesus' earthly life to honor not only the costly death, but the, the stony grave he will be buried in and that on the third day he will be rolled away. This led Mary and Jesus' disciple to deny their most valuable possessions, yes, and give it to Jesus. Is all that the world has to offer to them. It's nothing compared to Christ. Do you have the same priority friend? Now Jesus in this text is not suggesting that poor people need to be left in their misery, okay? We are to help the poor. Scripture is clear about that. In fact, we should do more. But you try to go and tell the religious zealot of our world. I think about liberal churches, environmentalists, the left, the socialists. That almsgiving is not as important as embracing the person and the message of Christ. You go and tell the advocates of today who want to eliminate poverty in the world. It is a lost cause. Why? Jesus says the poor you will always have with you. Isn't it interesting? In fact, how the poorest people are at times the most greedy. Surely we don't think that we got the resources to feed all the poor in the world. Jesus' words here are warning to the pretended benefactors. I think particularly, as I said... Social justice and all these people, they have the wrong priority, okay? Christ's presence, His work at the cross, somehow becomes secondary to the works of charity, to feeding homeless and other good causes take over. Sometimes even having a successful Christian business. I'm not denying the goodness of those endeavors. Don't get me wrong. But when you put them as more important than Christ Himself, than His gospel, that's where problems begin. And in our case, at this stage, I think, you think about our church, we, we have this uh, remodeling of the sanctuary, that we need to think about that. And but worst of all, like in our stories, when people like Judas, they have a different motive. They have a motive of betrayal. Those who speak in favor of the poor, like you think about now with Israel, there's so many NGOs preparing and sending millions of dollars to Gaza. Weeks ago, 
the citizens of Gaza were cheering at uh, dead Jews' bodies, okay? And they're actually making money out of the campaigns. That's an image how, without the gospel, all the good works remain just filthy rags, just like Judas. Without the true divine love within us from Christ, giving away all the possessions won't even help. So brethren, let us have the right judgment here. We must recognize that Christ is the Messiah. And as a Messiah, he has to be anointed. We already saw at the beginning of the Gospel of John how he was baptized by John, right? In chapter 1, verse 29. And that was the beginning of the ministry. But now, here's the end of Jesus' ministry, and he gets anointed. And we get closer and closer to the exaltation of Jesus through his death and resurrection. And obviously, there's different characters in our story. We got the chief priest. Obviously, they don't like Jesus. They try their best to stop him. They want to even stop Lazarus now. They seek to murder the only one who gives life. Woe to them. Other, many others, praise God, believe in Jesus. He's undeniably able to raise the dead. And that is, that is the prayer of a heart that God may send people and they might believe in this gospel and they might be raised from the dead. This resurrecting faith. That's the point that glorifies God through their conversion. But in the midst of all this noise, here comes this silent and yet full of meaning act of Mary of Bethany. What is she doing? Is she, she's anointing Jesus. Something that looks irresponsible, but it's doing something far greater. As the saying goes here in the south, Mary gave the roses while Jesus was still alive. Um, there's a hymn that put it this way. It speaks of uh, the gifts brought to Jesus at his birth. And we're, we're approaching Christmas in, in, in a month. But it says, Say shall we yield him in costly devotion. That as Jesus later that week was betrayed, crucified, buried, and raised, I can only think that the fragrance of the oil of Mary accompanied Jesus all the way through that torture. And you know, when you think about Judas, we... We have people that want to call their child Mary, but we don't have a lot of people that want to call their son Judas. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason. Don't miss this, this total misunderstanding of Judas. Don't miss this detail of the gospel of Jesus. That is sacrificial love on the cross is the point. Not pretended good works to justify yourself before God. And then you find yourself like the self-righteous Judas, still unrepentant in your sin. Instead of giving it all to God, you're only stealing from God. Friends, you are called to repent now and trust in this anointed Christ. This tomb, like this stony alabaster box, was broken and now he's risen to give you life and me. That we are dead in our sins, but he can raise us up. What do we learn from this story, friends? That while some like Judas break the box to steal from Christ, others like Mary.